Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Very excited to have a conversation with my guest today. She is a therapist turned feelings translator. I have with me today, Joanne Kim. Hi, Joanne. Hi, good to be here. So glad to have you. I'm going to start with you like I do all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? My biggest passion on a grand 30,000 view is as a dream activator. I love getting to know people according to the unique individual they are and to draw out the big dreams that they have and actually turn it into reality. And one way that I do that is by helping people tap into their full range of emotions and also their emotional habits that really reveal what matters the most to them. You know how like when people go to like watch a movie together with other people and they're watching the exact same movie, but they have different feelings be stirred up, even though they're watching the same movie. And each of their own personal reactions is a reflection of who they are in their individuality, their values, their life experiences. Like some part of the movie will be really like uh, heartwarming and exciting for someone and then for another person that's going to like trigger them you know and it's not to say that one person's experience is inherent good or bad all of them matter all of them there's enough room for everyone's experiences and instead of like judging ourselves for having certain experiences or certain reactions can we actually use that as a springboard to really get to know ourselves and also get to know one another you know, you go to the movie theater together and you watch the same movie. And my favorite part usually is the conversations that happen afterwards as we're like debriefing, like, well, what did you think about that scene and about that scene, about that character? Like that person is really annoying. But, you know, like kind of unpacking that afterwards makes even the first event of watching the movie all the richer. So I love helping people do that with their own life experiences. I appreciate that. And I love so much of what you said. So a few things came up for me while you were speaking. One, um, a dream activator. That's intriguing to me. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it. I think what was the most interesting about it is I am a person who is learning how to dream. Some Mm -hmm. people um, were big dreamers as children and then life, right? And so there is a reclamation of imagination Mm -hmm. and dreaming that they experience. Some people have maintained that their whole lives. And then there Mm -hmm. are some people, and this is not an exclusive three category, but I fall on the end of the spectrum of a person who 
uh, dreaming was just not part of the experience I yep. had growing up. And so, yep. but that doesn't mean that that capacity is not in me. So I mm -hmm. love that idea of dream activation. And then, yeah. uh, you know, the full spectrum of emotions, love that so much of, of the work I do is helping people recognize that their, their body can handle it and helping yeah. them create the room inside of themselves to hold it. But I love this idea about the movie. And what struck me mo most is how um, how non-accommodating our culture is yeah. <laughs> to what you described, right? Mm -hmm. From the sheer existence of critics, right? Mm -hmm. That say, this movie is good, this movie is bad. And that mm -hmm. so much weight goes yeah. into someone, some one person's, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. very subjective yep. uh, determination about a film, right? Yep. And how I see that play out, particularly on social media. Mm -hmm. my My insights churn a little bit when this happens and it happens all the time that someone is like oh that movie was trash and I'm just like well first mm -hmm. of all there is a difference between that movie is trash and I didn't like it I think yep. we should just start there you yep. have a right not to like it <laughs> right yep. you don't even have to explain mm -hmm. why but to declare mm -hmm. something as liter as trash because mm -hmm. one person in their their limited experiences of life did mm -hmm. not, you know, have a good experience watching or couldn't relate. And mm -hmm. and then people, someone else says, oh my God, it's the best thing ever. And it's almost as if those are the only two camps. It was amazing. Yep. It sucks. And then they go at each yep. other. And so yep. nuance, um, mm -hmm. individuation, all these things are just not regularly supported in our generalized mm -hmm. culture. So- Yep. When you have people that you are supporting and you get to be with and journey with who live in the same culture that we do, talk us through a little bit, you know, not necessarily step-by-step step unless you want to, but like, what's the path and arc way of like how you help someone move from what we internalize in our culture to being able mm -hmm. to go oh wow I am an individual who has a lot of different feelings sometimes simultaneously at the same time yeah what's that like so there was something that you said earlier when you were met, uh, talking about dream activation and your own experiences and finding out like more later in life that uh, like, yeah, it wasn't like a regular part of your early life experience, kind of a more recent thing. And the vast majority of the people I work with are highly sensitive persons, empaths, people who have big feelings in environments or families who didn't do feelings. Uh, lots of people who are in marginalized groups where it's not safe to have or express their own feelings. A lot of people who tend to absorb other people's stuff like, women, people of color, like all that, right? So like, you know, because if I were interacting with someone who happens to be in the dominant category or culture, frankly, they have already been encouraged. They, they're assumed to have big dreams and to be able to do something about it. So they don't even think twice. They just do the thing. Mm -hmm. And so for me, 
I love working with people whose dream capacity has been so dampened because it wasn't safe, because they were rejected or criticized or judged or whatever, or they've learned how to shapeshift and accommodate whatever other people's opinions or expectations were. And so like a lot of people, it's usually like, after a major crisis, like a breakup or then getting fired from a job or a kid's leaving for college and being an empty nester, all of a sudden there's all this space that opens up where the individual's like, well, what do I do now? I've oriented myself around other people's needs and expectations my whole life. And now I have no idea what to do next. Midlife crisis, core life crisis, end of life crisis, all of those things. And so for myself, I am an Enneagram 4, and one of the terms used for fours is called the individualist. And uh, there is a built-in assumption within my type autopilot in that everyone is an individual. And we are all different. Actually, fours get stuck in thinking, I am more different than everyone else. <laughs> But there's a lot of room for uh, our own respective subjective experiences, like compared to some other folks who think their opinion is the opinion, like capital T truth, right? Mm -hmm. And so those folks need to learn how to soften up and account that there are many, many subjective truths that can also coexist. For me, I tend to lean on the spectrum and assuming that everyone's truth is their own truth and it's all different. <laughs> And in the way that I work with people is you know, encouraging them to consider, yes, there is the louder truths that are spoken like on the pulpit, over the radio, like in movies and social media and all that stuff, but that doesn't negate your own personal subjective experience. It's just that that's the very message that a lot of my people need to heal from because their whole lives have been, they've been told that their experiences don't matter, their feelings are immature or irrational. And there's a lot of repair work that people need to do, a lot of healing that need to do even in reconciling with their own emotions or their own subjective experiences, giving themselves permission to be a self, be their own individual to have their own experiences instead of being defined as um, an extension of someone else, either someone who aligns with someone else or someone who's against someone else. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the word individuation and that's a lot of the experience actually. Yeah. Process. Well, as you were talking again, I'm coming back to the cultural implications mm -hmm. of, of, of just being and by culture I'm, I'm really just talking American at this point I'm sure it could yep. you know branch out western whatever but let's you know talk about American culture by and large the dominant narratives and cultures and identities that get to make the rules mm -hmm. um, and get to change them when it is yep. convenient for them mm -hmm. I thought about like yeah let me but as you were talking let me think about my own experience when was Shonda um explicitly told shown or demonstrated that she was an individual and then I thought about school I went one I went to a catholic school from kindergarten to 12th grade so there's one basic element there's so kindergarten to eighth grade there was a uniform right <laughs> so I think about the fact that 
to this day, one of the hardest parts of my day is picking clothes. <laughs> I I don't do well with that. So I have a partner mm-hmm. who I'm like, what should I wear today? Who would at least steer me in a job, you know, ask him right questions, or he might make a suggestion. And even if I don't want that, that goes, nope, I don't want that, but I'll do that. Because a very basic thing that I think some people take for granted is I spent most of my life in the formative years of my life, not having to think about what to wear, fashion. So (laughs) I have an underdeveloped muscle when it comes to thinking about that. I mm-hmm. I knew what I was going to wear. The choices were, do I want the jumper or the skirt today? <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? White shirt or blue shirt. That that was it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mm-hmm. learn it in that regard. And then primary education looks like I'm going to give you information and your worth is determined by how well you give that information back to me the way I gave it to you. That sums mm-hmm. up our education system. Yep. I learned really well how to give it back to people. And I even got bonus points for being very articulate and eloquent and passionate in all the things in which I could return information. But I was never encouraged through the education system to go, what do you think? How do you feel? Does this match your lived experience? Nah, that wasn't it. So a lot of experience, I, nope, you know, Art, music, recreation were all kind of structured in a way that didn't go, what What would you like? There were no African drums in my music class, but we had the recorder and classical music. So it's like all this indoctrination. Then I thought, okay, well, did I learn it in church? Nope. Church was actually just like school. I'm going <laughs> to give you information and your worth yes is directly connected to your ability to give me back the information that I gave Mm -hmm. you. And if you can do it on the Easter Sunday with a microphone and a pretty dress, you get bonus points. So I did it. Yeah. Right. And nowhere through my Christian upbringing, did anyone say, what is your individual relationship? How, how are you experiencing this as, as Shonda, who's different than every other person who's here? (laughs) Um, and then within my family, no, I mean, they were drinking the same Kool-Aid. <laughs> well, I was yeah. drinking the same Kool-Aid that they were. They were giving it to me. Mm-hmm. So I can genuinely appreciate this idea of sometimes the work starting with I am a self. Mm-hmm. And man, there are so many times where we're actually taught we're not a mm-hmm. self. I was taught I was a black yeah. woman. I was taught I was a woman. I was told I was black. I was talking about those individual, the intersection of those. I grew up in a fat Mm -hmm. body. So I, I, I understood myself as that, but a self, no, that's a discovery I had to make way down the line, kind of by myself as an adult. So I, I really appreciate that. What do Mm -hmm. you find when people come into selfhood And they enter into this new thing of like, whoa, I'm actually an individual who has at least the capacity for all of these different things. What are some of the reactions that you often see from people who, who, when they get to that point? I mean, I think a lot of it mimics the stages of grief, (laughs) frankly. At first it's like, what do you mean I have a self? Like it doesn't even register to them. It's just like, it doesn't mean or not the other, but there's a lot of envy 
in a lot of shame that those individuals feel on the inside that when they look to other people, it's like, oh, I really wish I could be like them. So there's a lot of mimicry that happens, which, you know, like for kids growing up, it is a totally normal part of the developmental process, mm-hmm. right? You know, they look to others and like, oh, like, wow, like that person, like, looks so-and-so or like, look at what they can do and look at the attention that they get from other people around them. It's like, okay, let me see if I can try to do just like that and then see what happens. And then so if it goes well, then great, keep going. If it doesn't go well, then there's like extra shame. It's like, well, why does it work for them? But not for me, it must mean that there must be something extra bad about me. And so even in the process of considering oneself as an individual, like that doesn't even come anywhere within the purview, right? Until the person experiences shame. Mm. Shame is inherently an emotion that highlights one's individual essence of individual personhood. Uh, shame, like with all the emotions, no emotion is inherently good or bad. They're very informational. And so what a lot of people think, well, shame is a bad emotion. Well, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> right. But it's not necessarily bad, just the themes behind it is I better fit in because I don't fit in. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are some individuals where you see them like talking on camera or whatever. It's like, that is so shameless. Like, I wish they had a little bit more shame. <laughs> that they could be more conscientious and considerate of other people, more respectful, et cetera, right? So when we look at a lot of the um, collectivistic, shame-driven countries in the world, it's like, well, you will not see any trash on the streets outside. Super clean, immaculate. The subway systems work really well. Everything is like, flowing very smoothly and we come to the United States and like I mean I live in the Bay Area and our public transportation system is trash <laughs> and that's not even like my subjective opinion like there's literally trash <laughs> on the floor right. all around and so it's like shame even that is not a bad emotion but it does say I am distinct from the group mm-hmm. and so the sense like our introduction to our own individualism unfortunately, is through the feeling of shame. Mm-hmm. I am different. I am disconnected. I am other than whatever is the dominant culture. It's not mm-hmm. a bad thing, but it's a very painful experience. And even within shame, there's a lot of lessons we can glean from it because, I mean, this is like shame is a very, very common experience for what? Post-puberty, middle school, high school. Yep. We become super self-conscious. Yes. <laughs> right? Up until like, you know, fifth grade. It's like, yeah, like kids might feel shame, but that's not like predominant experience. It's more, can I do it? It's more like achievement focused, right? Like I see the thing. Can I mimic the thing? Can I get rewarded? And if not, can I change something about how I show off so that I can be more aligned with the collective? There's not a whole lot of individualism. That's the emphasis there. It's usually like middle school when like, my friend calls it the barnyard ears. You start like looking funny, sounding funny, smelling funny, like everything changes. <laughs> Our world completely obliterates and we become so fixated on ourselves that, you know, people enter into like, the emo teenage years where like so many feelings, partially because we're extra focused on self. Right. And so, and in so many, we might actually mimic 
uh, mirror that experience too. Yes. And so many emotions when there's generally speaking, nothing set up around you to encourage you to feel them, encourage you to understand them, encourage you to name them, to normalize them. I, I think in adulthood, so the thing about, uh, I've had it, I've had children and how the oxytocin and all these chemicals get released to kind of help you forget that your body just went through a terrible trauma and almost ripped you in half. So you actually do that again. Right. I I feel like that's part of the process. What happens going into adulthood around adolescence, Mm -hmm. people forget. Yep. And I'm yep. constantly sitting in a place trying to remind adults, let let me help you remember, because all the judgment you have for that adolescent right there, it was you. I'm not saying it looked exactly like that, but you went through this experience. So mm-hmm. that, and I, I really appreciate you talking about mimicry. I don't know if mimicry is a word, but it feels real good when I say it, mimicry. Yep. <laughs> because <laughs> I also feel like, You know, we have, we, I'm still talking about our generalized culture has been misinformed about so many things. And one of them is that chronological age and developmental age are synonymous and simultaneous and and they're not. And Mm -hmm. so someone like myself who said, you know, I didn't have, dreaming wasn't part of my, my growing up experience to expect that I now recognize that and that just because I have that awareness, all of a sudden I'm going to have the capacity and capability as if I've been developing this for 40 years, it's completely unrealistic. And so people Mm -hmm. are coming into these new awarenesses about themselves, but there is sometimes and often an expectation that they're going to have a mastery of it just because they recognize it's not there. But instead, no, you're going to go through the stages of development that you would have had this been something that was part of your life since since birth or since child. But there is so little tolerance, personal individual tolerance, societal tolerance, familiar to all is so little tolerance for people to go through the stages. And so there's so much judgment and shame heaped onto other people because they're still trying to figure it out. So the example you use, particularly with mimicry, you know, you look at it and you go, wait, so I'm an individual. Look at that person. Look how she does that thing. I wonder, I like that. I like the results that that she's getting I I like that I'm gonna try it and then you'll have people be like you need to be yourself don't don't go around doing what everybody else doing it's like time out time out people like one I do have a theory I'm working on this theory in practice sometimes we just need to mind our own damn business yeah (laughs) so that's a working theory that I want to share with people Mm -hmm. you just need to mind your own business right but there's this idea that if you can't mind your own business the only other alternative that I see as suitable is to love well Mm -hmm. so love well or mind your own business and I remember having a conversation well it wasn't even a conversation It, it was an observation over Facebook that got me to thinking there is a person who was talking about essentially um it, it was in regards to relationships. Now, I want to tell you this. It, it got a whole lot of culture dripping on it. It has some Christian culture dripping on it. It has some, you know, what I would say, some pretty traditional Black African-American churches. So it was kind of like um, Sierra and Russell Wilson, 
don't know if you're familiar football player artist they are married couple sierra was dated was married or dating has a child by a rapper now she's with this football player who there is all this non-mind your own business commentary critics very little in between of oh my god he's an amazing guy and then on the other side he is so lame whatever okay right so this conversation was happening and either someone i think someone came out with a song called sierra's prayer and the general Mm -hmm. gist is like the encouragement for women particularly women within the christian church to one specifically and exclusively value themselves based on their partnership with a man but that's an asterisk and aside but with Mm -hmm. that knowing if you can pray for the right kind of man like what was sierra's prayer like let's pray for this kind of thing so that's kind of the gist and i someone was commenting like i don't need sierra's prayer like you know I know what I want. I can, you know, do all this. And 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 it was intriguing because on one hand, it was like, I hear you. At the same time, you don't know what you want unless you see it. Some, some representation of it. It's not a thing until at least, it, you know, you've seen at least something that can help you guide. Oh, I don't like that. I like that. So they used an example mm-hmm. of a, an SUV. I don't, I don't need that. I just, you know, I know what I want, but I'm like that that's actually, I mean, you ain't make it up in your head. You ain't go get some aluminum and some plastic. No, somebody advertised it or you saw somebody driving it or, you know, someone who owns it and you go, Ooh, I kind of like that. Now I'm going to customize it. All that to say, it's okay sometimes to see something in someone else and go, that's intriguing to me. We don't have to want to possess it all, take it. And, but sometimes that is the stepping stone, just like as we're Mm -hmm. growing up as children, right? I've always said, why do children walk? Because the other adults walk. I mean, they want to get from one place to another and they see how everyone else is doing it. People aren't walking on their hands, generally speaking. If they were, the kids would try it. But because we're generally using our legs and they see how we're mobile, they go, I want to try that. So they start pulling up, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this idea that because they've seen it, it's like, oh, I can replicate that and then put my own spin to it. But so often people are discouraging people from the natural path of development. So that felt a little soapboxy. I'm not going to put it up, but... (laughs) I will put it over to the side and step down for a second. <laughs> well, ironically, there's kind of conflicting messages we hear. One is don't go out of line. Stay in your lane, you know, follow the rules, know your place, whatever. And another place of be authentic, be yourself, whatever. <laughs> Both of these are polarized. They kind of flip sides of the same coin because I, ironically like even those who say like be your own authentic self they have a certain idea in mind of what authenticity means Mm -hmm. it's an arbitrary standard (laughs) right and it only sets people up for further judgment it doesn't matter which camp you're getting the judgment from but you know the healing truth is probably somewhere in between not like halfway down the line where it's like 50 percent 50 percent that 
but it's probably more integrated into our own particular blend, also based on the immediate context that we're in. If you take one individual who has, you know, positive, negative, you know, the rough and tumble experiences in this country, and you pick them up and you drop them in a different country, they're going to have wildly different experiences, even though the individual didn't change. So the ability to shift according to one's immediate environment is a very necessary skill. And it doesn't mean that they're being inauthentic. They're just summoning an authentic part of them that happens to align with the immediate environment that they're in. And so I think we need to have a lot of permission to recognize that when we shift in our different environments, it's not us being dishonest. It's just we're accounting that there are actual risks, real risks and real costs that involve um, that we incur being in particular environments because the environments themselves may not be safe and welcoming. So Mm -hmm. if the individual gets judged for shifting because the culture isn't welcoming, well, then there's way too much blame placed on that one person. Well, exactly. And the and the fact that the the person can inherently trust themselves to know when they're in an unsafe yeah. environment, I think is right. huge. I think part of the healing journey, this has been my experience. I've seen it with a lot of folks is I call it the pendulum swing. Like yeah. the pendulum swings to extremes before it finds it finds this kind of mm-hmm. balanced rest. And, you know, as a person who has said many times, I've spent the vast majority of my life shape, shape shifting and people pleasing. When, when, when my pendulum swung to the other extreme, it's like, I ain't shifting for nobody. Well, that, (laughs) that, that wasn't a very long lasting endeavor. Um, I would do this. I can recount so many instances throughout life where I would feel some kind of shame for how much I talked, how much space I took up, how much, yeah, how much I was Shonda. And the pain of that would lead me to declare, I'm not talking no more. I mean, man, I was so unsuccessful at that because who I am, this this is who I am, but how much I would try, right? I have some people in my life who are extremely private. Like I joke with this friend, like, some things that like I should have known, like whatever grade we were in, I don't know, high school, like when she got a beeper, she didn't tell me. Like, how you not gonna tell me you got a beeper? Like, that's so, you know? Or one day I happened to be walking out in the parking lot with her at the same time and like she had gotten a car. Girl, how you took me out a car, right? And then when she was like salutatarian, like no one, so we joke about these things and I would always look and go like, I, there's part of me that wishes like there was mystery about me. Like, I I wish that, man, that there were some parts like that, that were like that. Right. But man, that, that just wasn't authentic to who I was. And so Mm -hmm. this pendulum swings. And so I see people sometimes when they're moving into this healing space and they're finding their authentic self, whatever things kept them from authenticity or were barriers to authenticity at one point, there's a declaration that that won't happen again. And part of it is like, we get to live in this in-between space. Again, something that our culture yep. does not encourage that yep. we don't see. We live in a culture of extremes, you mm-hmm. know, the top 1% and poverty. 
and mm-hmm. everyone is just trying to get away from the, you know and so there there's no this and even hearing like the middle class is disappearing right this is this thing that's to say even just in that concept the middle mm-hmm. this space where actually life is lived love is loved this place where all of the magic happens is being discouraged which just feels wild but it is it is what it is you know if people don't have room within themselves to hold multiple realities at the same time they ain't no fucking way they're gonna be able to do it with other people how can you no it's like it's if within oneself there's only room for one or the other, one feeling or the other, then there's no way that a person can actually engage in true empathy. Yep. Which acknowledges that the other is another for one. I am also a distinct person. We all have our distinct, unique experiences and they can coexist at the same time. It's like that does not register for people because that is how, you know, honestly, that's how. Uh, elementary schoolers operate mm-hmm. we don't have room for nuance mm-hmm. it's too much work and mm-hmm. so people are like you know what like i don't want to spend the effort trying to find somewhere something in between i'm just going to go with what's easy that's the yeah. default and i've a recent discovery for myself is um i realized that there are people in my life who don't know certain things are a thing. So there are certain people in my life who have never genuinely experienced love without conditions. So there, it's not a thing. Love is conditioned. It's conditional. So they can't even fathom that I have the capacity to hold them unconditionally. Before this acknowledgement this recognition for me I took their responses personally as personal attacks on me my character my their perception of my intent and I started to go like no actually they don't even know they they do not understand that one person can feel multiple things at one time not just two like either or no multiple things at one time and because that's not even a thing for them my capacity then then the the indictments or the judgments are you're being fake or you're being disingenuous or because you just say it this but now you're saying this well you told this person this about this but then you're and it's like oh oh I get it I spent all this time trying to defend myself and my position. Now I realize it's not about me at all. It's about the fact that I have been working diligently, painstakingly to clear out the things I need to clear out so that my body can hold expansiveness and tension at one time, that I can experience joy and fear at the same time that I can both want to move towards something and want to move away from it simultaneously at the same time. And it doesn't crack my body in half that I'm able to just sit with that and go, Ooh, Oh, right. How you feeling? You know, we get asked that question, but I always look at people like, I don't even know if you had a capacity. I mean, you want me to say one word, don't you? 
mm-hmm. <laughs> and you want it to be a word that's not even a feeling word. You want me to say good. Yeah. And I can't even really do that anymore if if we're going to have any kind of depth. Because let mm-hmm. me tell you, you know that feelings wheel that you sometimes see with all the colors and all the section and all the words? I got about 20 of those right now, just about this one thing. Do you really want to know how I feel? And when I know that capacity is not there, I'm not going to lie. I default to that. I'm cool. I'm good. Yeah. You know, yeah. because you're, 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 you, that was your way of actually saying hello. Yep. Good. Mm-hmm. Hey, how you doing? But then cultivating relationships that when they say, how you feeling? They're saying, and now I have the capacity and time to go. Let's go through all the nuances of all of that. But when I started to realize that 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 is so foreign to so many people, and as I I would imagine, and you can share if this is a similar experience for you, when I'm working with folks and journeying with them, helping them expand their capacity to hold all of that, yeah. they they are coming and they're feeling they're getting healing. And then there's more distress that's happening as well because they're still in relationships with other people who don't even know that it's a thing. So it's this personal stuff that's great, right? They're great when they're in office with us. They're great when they're talking with us. But then there is that grief and frustration because now they're going back into all these other relationships with people like that have no clue. Mm -hmm. It is an important skill, a discernment skill for people to recognize the other person's capacity. Now, there I'm going to put a disclaimer in. Sometimes we can like make a judgment call in assuming that the other person can't handle it. But my encouragement for folks is test it out. Test it out with some lower risk things. And if the other person drops those balls, okay, no judgment. That person is not in a space they don't yet have the capacity to hold bigger things. That's all right. We all have been there. It's not a problem. But those aren't your people right now. It's like, you know, throwing pearls before swine. Like we don't open ourselves up in our most vulnerable, tender places to people who just they don't even have a category in their brain, <laughs> let alone the language for it. Again, no judgment on those folks. But it is discernment in recognizing this is neither the time or place or person for me to open up regarding this part of myself yet. So we look for people who actually have that capacity. And I think this is kind of where a lot of, you know, highly sensitive persons, empaths, et cetera, a lot lot of um, compassionate, conscientious folks kind of, um, they get stuck in that because they know they have the capacity to hold other people's feelings and be present for them, they assume that other people also operate the same way. And it's understandable, but technically it's projection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's like disillusionment because the other person isn't actually a reflection of you. So there's like a term that I love called ruinous empathy. <laughs> it's kind of where the person, you know, we think of love as automatically a good emotion and hate as automatically a bad emotion. But again, like with shame, they're all neutral, you know, because they're, it's not about the emotion itself. It's about the subject of that emotion, where it gets directed. But folks who lean more in the ruinous empathy category, 
it are folks who tend to overly lean on their capacity to go outside themselves to other people's territories and accidentally take on other people's pain, other people's feelings, other people's responsibility as if it's their own. And they often feel rejected, shamed, criticized because they put too much of their heart out there in the world when the world around them wasn't ready to Mm -hmm. hold that. And then they come back within themselves and like, oh, like, you know, they're not seeing me, they're not understanding me, whatever. So let me double down and try to explain myself, explain my feelings even further. And there's this kind of, you know, um, vicious cycle that happens. And then the individual is like, well, if I'm trying to explain myself and no one's getting me or seeing me, that must mean I'm too much. Yeah. And then that kind of reinforces the shame. So it's not necessarily that the individual is bad or the environment is bad. It's just there's a mismatch between the sacredness of one's own experience and their immediate environment's capacity to actually receive that and honor that well. Yeah. So it takes discernment to identify, all right, who around me has an actual track record of holding my truths well? If yes, I may try the next level in. If not, no problem. Maybe the, maybe I'll dial it back and then see if that's a good equilibrium point. Yeah. You know, and when, there's room for all kinds of folks along that spectrum. Absolutely. So many things. Um, when you were talking, a thought came up to me. I was like, hmm, I think an analogy metaphor and stuff. And I, I had this thought of like, um, on my way from my home to my office, I passed this canine doggy daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, Hmm. What if a person went, that's a daycare. And they took their, their infant child to this daycare and they're like, but it's a daycare. It says it right there. It's a daycare. So I'm going to entrust my child to them. And when they come back, they find that the child's diaper hasn't been changed, but you know, they're like, what? Like the care that that infant received would be like, this is not suitable for my mm-hmm. child. And you are yep. so right. Mm-hmm. But it was a doggy daycare. It is suitable for the doggies. Right. Mm-hmm. And the expectation that the doggy daycare has the accommodations, has the capacity, mm-hmm. has the know-how, has the desire to care for a human child. It's just unreasonable. And I feel like that's sometimes what we do. Right. Yeah. We go, I'm giving you my feelings. I'm mm-hmm. I'm opening up my heart to you as mm-hmm. if that's the infant. And it's not that the doggy daycare is bad. Mm-hmm. The doggy daycare is just not a child daycare. So we mm-hmm. are constantly putting forth ourselves sometimes into spaces that aren't inherently bad spaces, like you said, but are not equipped. Mm-hmm. They don't have the capacity. They don't know mm-hmm. how to handle that. Mm-hmm. What I was also thinking is the challenge of like, when the people, when there are certain people in your life that you want, that you have such a desire to be able to hold it and the, the like the, the pain that comes mm-hmm. with that. So I think it's like, yeah, there might be people out there, but I want my mom to be totally. one of those people. I want my partner 
to be one of those people. I want my cousin to be one of those people. I want my pastor, rabbi, shaman. I want, there are people I want to be these people. And then sometimes I think we get stuck because yep. we go, okay, well, how much? So then we do this thing, right? Where we go, okay, I'll show them how to do it. I'll mm-hmm. show them how to do it by doing it for them. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to learn, surely, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to do it for them. I'm going to sacrifice a whole, whole lot to do it for them too. And then they're going to learn to do it and they're going to do it for me, right? Right? Good plan. High yeah. five. And then yeah. and now, because I feel like I say it every episode, we don't teach people how to treat us by how we treat them. We teach people mm-hmm. how to treat us by how we treat ourselves, that Ooh, they get yeah. to follow our lead. And so many of us, you know, because all the categories you name, I feel like I fall in that Enneagram too, you know, highly and all the things, right? I, yeah, I spent so much energy trying to get the people I wanted to be my people, to be my mm-hmm. people. And there mm-hmm. was a more recent revelation um, within the last couple of years in that some of the people I want to be my people may never be my people in that capacity. Yeah. But okay. Outside of that, there are some people who are genuinely my people. If I can be open to that, then I'm going to start finding my people. But once I was able to let loosen that up, I realized that when I just let the doggy daycare be a doggy daycare, the doggy daycare is fine. Mm -hmm. When I just let people be, who they, who they are. And I am clear on who they've demonstrated that they are. Then they just get put in the right seat on the bus and they, they're actually fine. The relationship can actually be good because they've been pretty clear about who they are and what they can do and what they can't do. And once I stopped trying to manipulate them into being my people, they actually became my people, just a different kind of people. Yep. And as you're sharing, I think we kind of, uh, we touched upon the denial stage of the grief process and a person rec- not even registering that they're a distinct individual. And then the second stage is anger. It's like them for the first time realizing like, hey, hold on a minute. Like, I have, I'm actually not okay with this. Usually the first emotion that comes up is resentment. <laughs> yeah. And then once the resentment, like you tap into that, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so livid. Like, you know, how could no one have ever taught me how to actually have my own voice and all of that stuff? That is a very valuable process, but also very uncomfortable. And then there's, you know, like you said, the pendulum swings back. It's like, well, I know I can't do this much anger because it's a bad emotion or whatever. And it's like, okay, let me let me see if I can try to make this work for me. And as you said, like, let me try to show these other people how to receive me well. And that would be the bargaining stage and like exerting control trying to manipulate one's own environment so that I don't have to go through the change process Mm. and recognizing that this is just a wall that you cannot break past you know like some people they don't have the capacity for me yet some people might have the potential to grow and change you just don't know who those people are nobody knows the individuals themselves don't know and so it's like you know I'm not gonna hold my breath waiting hoping for them to change I'm going to just recognize that this is not a situation I have any control over. And then that's kind of what always swings the depression stage <laughs> of the grief process. Like I recognize that I'm helpless. I have zero control over the situation. I am floating out in the abyss, not knowing which side is up. And that's kind of where a lot of the um, 
crystallization happens in defining oneself. Like, you know, I'm recognizing that I've lived most of my life as if I'm God, mm, trying on. to change my environment, trying to change other people so that it would suit me so that I don't have to change. I recognize that I'm a, I am a finite, limited human being in a very imperfect, broken world full of other people who also have no idea what the fuck they're doing. Let me come to reckon with that and put myself in my rightful seat, an honorable seat as a human being, not as God or the devil. Yes. And that's kind of when we can phase uh, switch into that. I mean, it's called the acceptance phase. I don't know if I quite like that word, but it'll do for now. Like it's like coming to acknowledge and coming to terms with reality for what it is versus what I thought it was in the very beginning. Yes. <laughs> there was this moment I had. Life became so much less disappointing for me when I realized I wasn't the center of the universe. It was a huge shift. It was literally when I went, oh my goodness, I am not the center of everyone's world. So when I'm wearing this outfit that really I'm not feeling that comfortable in, everyone's not looking at me. Mm-hmm. everyone is literally not stopping what they're doing to look at me. Mm-hmm. What? But I spent yeah. 30 some <laughs> years of my life believing that was true. Like yeah. every, every insecurity I have, everyone has not pulled out a magnifying glass to examine it. Really? You mean to tell me there are actually people who don't even notice when I'm like, what? When I yeah, do <laughs> The audacity, right? <laughs> when I decentered myself from yeah. everyone else's universe, I felt so much less disappointed because imagine how disappointed it is when you're the center of the universe and people still let you down. Mm-hmm. People still don't show up for you the way you need them to. People still don't acknowledge that you have needs. Oh, you must be a terrible God. <laughs> I was a terrible God. <laughs> terrible. Yeah ball this was like wait a minute I don't want this job no more I resign I actually don't <laughs> want to be God no more I don't want to be a senior nurse like here here I don't even give I didn't even give a proper two-week notice I just quit on spot and I have felt so much less disappointed mm-hmm. and when you were talking I had this thought that come up and I I I'm, I wrote it down because I want to sit with this for myself feels good to me like ooh. I've spent so much time recognizing, um, you know, putting people in their right seats, kind of trying to observe and evaluate people's capacity to hold all of me that I never want until this moment considered how many relationships was I the person that didn't have the capacity? How many relationships? We don't talk about that. No, we don't want to talk about that, right? That's what I'm saying, y'all. This is for Shonda. Y'all ain't, you know, cover your ears. La, 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 la. You don't have to listen to this part if you don't want. But I sat for the first time in my life and went, wait a minute. I know there were times that I was misassigned on somebody's bus. I know there were times, particularly of a 12-year period of my life, I know I wasn't available to anybody else. I was in such a dissociative trauma just I was in a I wasn't in a great place 
though I looked like I was, I didn't have the capacity to be there for anybody. I was doggy pedaling all out. And now I just want to sit with myself and go, hmm, I bet there were people who were handing their hearts over to me and I didn't have the capacity. And how when it's that, I want to come up with all the rationale, right? Well, this is what was going on in my life. And I have all the reasons why I couldn't. What that what that does, though, is that goes, mm, everybody had their reason too. So when we're saying, oh, some people don't have the capacity, they don't know how. I love how you keep emphasizing yet. Maybe it hasn't come yet. Maybe it won't. But there's something going on in their life too. And when we are centralizing ourselves in everyone's story, then we there's no reason. There's no, you know, it, it's just, why are they disappointing me? But it's people out here living whole lives in some fashion or form. So that hit me. And I'm 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 eager actually to kind of sit with 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 that. There are parts of me, my internal experience, my littles that have needed me and I didn't have capacity. Can I sit and recognize that I've disappointed myself by not even being available to myself in ways? I have disappointed the emotions that said, I'm just trying to send you a message. Like, can you just take the letter? It's like putting up an invisible fence, not letting the mail carrier get to your mailbox. (laughs) You know, zapping them, having rifles, like threatening the mail carrier who's just trying to deliver the mail. Male person's like, look, I'm not responsible for what's in the content of these envelopes. It is just my job to put them in your mailbox. What you do with them is none of my business. That's emotions job. That's feelings jobs. They are mail yep. delivery people. And all they're saying is, can <laughs> I just give you the envelope? Yeah. It ain't a bad envelope. It ain't a good envelope. It's just an envelope that contains information. And that information is it's being sent to you to do something with it to aid your survival, your ease, your life. Mm-hmm. But we sitting yep. up here spending all our time at at the at the at the mail delivery people for sending us the message, right? Just gotta get. I'm so them. glad someone received that memo. Who's not me? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, because that's like one of the main metaphors that I use to describe feelings, and it's like. This is not something that I'm inventing here. There's nothing new under the sun. That's not like, you know, the copyright joint, whatever. Like, it doesn't really matter. I don't really care how people receive that message, that feeling for messages. But it's even extra, it's extra validating that to hear that from another person. Yes. That we didn't like pre-decide the script. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. I When you said in like messenger, I kept wanting to come back and I would forget, but I'm glad yeah. I got to get it out because it's, it's, it's the metaphor I use all the time. Like, and yeah. the reality is some people really do get mad at the mail delivery person. I like totally. in real life, yeah. you know, in yeah. real life. They're like, it's, it's, it's also the equivalent of like getting mad at the server who brings the food that mm-hmm. was made incorrectly. Mm-hmm. You ordered your steak medium rare. It came medium. And who gets like the ire and the who gets all the all the gunk of that? It's the person who delivered it to the table. It is like yeah. that person didn't cook it. Right. And mm-hmm. whose tip is impacted? Whose review? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, the del- it's the person delivering. It's not even right. Feelings mm-hmm. just delivered it to the table. Right. Yeah. You know, that piece of mail has your name on it. And 
you're the person who's supposed to receive the mail. And so like, maybe instead of you taking out on the person who delivered it, maybe you direct that energy to focusing on what's in the content of the mail and doing something about it. That's it. That's it. Oh, okay. And like, I feel like we talk about this, like <laughs> keep going, like keep going. But in recognizing the time, <laughs> Joanne, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Anything I didn't ask or anything you want to say as we start um, closing up our time that you want to leave with me and my listeners? Honestly, there's like so many things I would love to share about. So like, let me know if you need another guest to come back. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but the main thing is, I guess the takeaway from our time today will be in recognizing that our emotions are inherently both a personal, like an individual experience, as well as a collective experience at the same time. And that our own feelings about our feelings are sometimes a byproduct of the environments that we're in. So before we judge ourselves for the millionth time, maybe we'll zoom out a little bit and at least question, is there something in my environment whose stuff I'm absorbing and taking on as if it's a reflection of me? Mm. Maybe this ain't my stuff. Maybe I'm actually overly judging myself because other people are unjustly taking responsibility for their own stuff. What a word. Maybe I am overly judging myself because there are other people who are underly taking responsibility. That right there to let us go a whole nother hour. That's awesome. <laughs> I <laughs> I needed somebody to hear that. I needed to hear that. Um, so um, I love when the conversations are so good that we don't actually get to talk about like what you actually do. I mean, you've named it a little bit, but we just went in, which mm -hmm. I love. But I would yeah. love for folks to know like, mm, Joanne is saying some stuff over there. How can I work with her? She got some stuff I need. How can I get in touch? So can you tell folks a little bit about like, you know, you've said what you do in a general umbrella sense, but like, what are the services that you offer? How can people find and get in touch with you? Yeah, I think uh, on this topic, the main way that I, I'm trying to help people around their emotions, because as a therapist by training, I've recognized that, I mean, a lot of it's one-on-one -on -one sessions, right? With like a strict confidentiality, privacy, whatever. It's understandable. Lots of people need that individualized space. But, you know, there are lots of sessions where I'm like, man, I really wish my other client early in the week could hear listening on this conversation is frustrating because like, Again, there's nothing new under the sun. Like mm -hmm. one person struggling with shame, thinking I'm the only person who struggles with this. And there's this other person who's like, I'm the only person who struggles with this. And who are they going to tell? Me, because I'm a therapist, right? Yep. <laughs> and if only I can kind of break down those walls outside of therapy arrangement, for example, having a collective group conversation where a person who doesn't have they don't feel comfortable. They don't feel safe. They don't have the courage to ask that scary question for themselves, but they're, they'll hear another person asking that same question. You know, I think that our own emotional, personal healing process has to be in the context of relationships because that's where we got hurt. Yes. Right. So what I hope to do is, you know, a lot when I share 
what I usually share about feelings to like the clients or just people around me is like the number one feedback that I get. It's like, why didn't anyone teach us this in school? And so in response to that, I'm trying to build a school. <laughs> I'm trying to build a school on feelings where we can have like, you know, the, the one-on-one framework, learning the building blocks. And then it's in the classroom setting. It's in like the cafeteria where like people are kind of like sharing about their own experiences and like wrestling with the source material or whatever. That's kind of where the magic happens, not just in isolated book study that only builds head knowledge, but doesn't actually lead to personal transformation. So that's the school that I want to create. Um, At the current moment, my uh, name for it might be the Big Feeler Flow State Academy. I don't know if that's going to stick. We'll see how it goes. But uh, that's my big dream for the moment in creating content that people could take in because we have to learn first through our head. And then we need to have a reaction to what we learn through our head. So we have a head, you have, then have the heart, and then the transformation happens to actually lead to action. That's the body. And so that's my dream. Um, I am uh, having a live, it's kind of like a hybrid model where people can like learn the things on their own time. I work with a lot of uh, people in the Silicon Valley they don't always have time to carve aside in their week to like attend a live thing, but they might kind of just do it on the side. But there are some live weekly or monthly calls where people can ask their questions or like someone can join in on the hot seats. Like let's work together and other people kind of observe and take away something for themselves personally. Mm-hmm. So that is wonderful. So is there excited a, about it. I know. Like, it's like, I, I can imagine people like, is there a wait list for this? Like, how do I sign there up? There is a <laughs> So how do people sign up for that? And, or if they just got a, yeah, question, how can they reach out and find you? Well, there's two things. One is, you know, people are like, you know, I, I'd like to let this sit and mentoring a little bit more, or like, I have some like big feelings that are going on right now. It's spilling over in my day-to-day life, in my relationships or at work, which is not the best time or place to address or uh, attend to our feelings. So I have what's called the big feeler first aid kit. You know, our immediate environment is not always safe or ready to hold our sacred emotions. And so the first aid kit gives people some breathing room so that they can decide for themselves when is a good or better time and place for them to go back and honor their own experiences because it's not about how other people treat us. It's about how we treat ourselves, as you said. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's one part. Um, So I can kind of give you the link the big feeler first aid kit. And then as for the wait list, uh, I can also provide the link as well. Um, This uh, coming season, I hope to do some free fun live calls. And so like, if you join the, uh, if you grab the guide, then you also hear more about the upcoming wait list. But otherwise, uh, it's intelligentemotions.com slash first aid kit or intelligentemotions.com slash flow. I love it. We will definitely have that information in the show notes for folks. Um, Intelligentemotions.com is where they can, Mm -hmm. is that how they contact you? So we'll have all of that information there for folks who are like, yeah, she was speaking my language or I got some big feelings. Um, Joanne, I genuinely appreciate you taking the time to just uh, share your passion and your work with me and my listeners. It was so good to have you here. 
So thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you all know the usual shout out to Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, who is my producer, my nephew, Trey Angel, who provides the music for The Labors of Love, uh, Steph Just Spencer, who does all of my social media. These are the people holding me down, y'all so that I can continue to do what I do. I want to thank you, my listeners, to turn, uh, for uh, for tuning in. At the time of this recording, we're like 400 listens away from 70,000, y'all. That's a big <laughs> deal, okay? I know I've been itching, like we're getting closer and like in the next week or so, we're going to be there. And that just means so, 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 so much to me. So thank you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for content or guests, you can hit my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. And there's a form for you to fill out. Don't forget, I have my Patreon. If you want to contribute uh, financially to the work that I put out into the world, we're on all the major social media outlets. And if you haven't already, please go ahead and give a review and uh, a rating for the podcast. I'd appreciate it. Until we connect again, you all be well.